0: probably goes without saying, but let me just say it to put us on the same page. Relationships are a big deal for us in society. We talk about them, we read about them, we hear them sung. Arguably one of the most common theme in music, lyrics. It fills most magazine covers in our grocery stores. And it's a subject that many of us like talking about even if it's not our own relationship. In fact, some pastors have been advised that they should teach on relationships at least once a year if not more in their church to get people to come. As a recruiting campaign, as a way to build your church attendance campaign. Regardless of what's actually offered or whether or not it's helpful or whether or not it's interested, just the fact that it sort of scratches a felt itch. What's needed by way of interest. Well, that's not unique to Miami, and it's not unique to our generation. People have wanted to talk about relationships for thousands of years. In fact, the text we're going to be in tonight is actually a conversation about relationships. But this is not because we're trying to hit on hot-button topics. If you're just joining us tonight for the first time, it's our practice at Grace Church to go through the Bible teaching through different writings of what's being taught. We've gone through Titus. We've gone through other sections. We've gone through Ephesians, different letters to churches. We've gone through study books like Deuteronomy on Wednesday nights. Many of our groups are studying the book of Isaiah. Well, we're going through the writings of Matthew, known as the Gospel of Matthew. We've been working away from chapter 1 all the way up to present state, which is chapter 19, which happens to be on relationships. And interestingly, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders at the time in this sort of sect of Judaism, they had questions for Jesus. Now, as you understand in relationships, sometimes questions are just statements in the form of a question. We know what that's like to have someone ask you a question, but you can kind of hear the inflection, like someone's trying to make a statement in the form of a question. Others, though, perhaps are quite sincerely and, hum- and humbly placed as being sincere expressions. Teach us that we might learn. Well, in Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12, Jesus is sort of being brought into a debate, a debate particularly about the topic of divorce. Turns out, divorce is not just a conversation for today, but it has been one since almost the beginning of time, at least going all the way back to the writings of Moses in the book of Exodus. In Matthew 19 is our text for this evening, and if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know what others perhaps you do not know, which is we've been in a four-part series trying to slow down the tape and take a look at the text, that we might understand what Jesus assumes His listeners then understood. That many of us today, not being raised in religious homes, let alone Jewish homes, have maybe some of these presuppositions of understanding. And so two weeks ago, we talked about why Jesus cares about your gender, Talked about specifically from Matthew 19, verse 4. And last week, we talked about why Jesus cares about your relationship. And next week, we'll be talking about why Jesus cares about your divorce. Just, again, looking at the text and bringing it to bear in our lives by way of comparing contrasts to our culture. Well, tonight, message for our title and time together tonight is why Jesus cares about your marriage. Matthew 19. If you've not done so, let me ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 19 encourage you to bring a copy of the Bible with you. If you don't have one, we have them for free at the Welcome Center. I realize generationally a lot of people like to go to smartphones or tablets, but studies have been shown that when you get a chance to read it kind of like an old-school textbook, you see it in context, you're more likely to mark it up, you see it and you retain it better, not reading it like it's an Instagram post with short little hashtags. Matthew 19 is a text. Let's just, again, put the text back in front of us, and you'll see we're going to focus it on tonight. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Verse 2 of 19, Matthew 19, and the large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but are those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who will have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Our purposes for our time together tonight will be focusing on verses 5 and 6, but now we know it in its context. And in keeping with where we've kind of uh, outlined our time before in the previous two Sundays, part one is tonight going to be about the culture's take on marriage, part two is God's take on marriage, and part three is what we should do, what we should do. So let's consider, first of all, the culture's take on marriage. Now, like an old home built in the 1950s that has been bought and taken over by new owners who intend to remodel it to today's design sensibilities, so often this is the case with many in how they view marriage today. In fact, there have been so many changes that from the previous generation, to today's generation and how we think about marriage, that many of the previous generation of perhaps our grandparents and great parents, they wouldn't even recognize how we'd speak about marriage today at society in large, in society at large rather. In fact, the changes have been rapid and have been far-reaching. Not only has it been extended to include men being able to be married to men and women being able to be married to women, but there's been examples like Adam O'Connell who married Oliver. His favorite 25-year-old horse, who back in 2015 married his horse. In fact, many marriage ceremonies and subsequent unions have become such a circus that many people have sworn off marriage altogether and pledged to just get on with life without being married. In the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, they recently reported that women aged 32 to 38, 25% of them were not married when they had their first babies. 25% of the young women aged 32 to 38. You say, well, what's the point of reference there? Well, but a few years earlier, 1996, that was only 4%. So in a relatively short amount of time, many young adult women have just basically looked at marriage and been like, Unnecessary and for some reason clearly unpreferable. The Telegraph, a newspaper in Britain, reported this past week how having a child out of wedlock went from being an insult about a person to now an aspiration, as if you've been able to accomplish something commendable. Marriage has fallen on hard times. It's been redefined by some, dismissed entirely by others. While others aspire to be married, but find it an elusive goal to accomplish. Others have chosen a supposed freedom that allows them greater flexibility and autonomy. That doesn't have to be tied down to one person because honestly, marriage seems a little too serious for these days. Because to say yes to one exclusively, entirely till death do you part, that seems a bit severe and unnecessary. Let's just promise to love each other if at some point in the future we decide we don't love each other, well, then we'll agree for the best, let's now depart, wish each other well. Sex used to be previously tied to marriage, or at least the promised commitment of it in the future, but now in a hookup culture, it is so accessible that either with the swipe of a finger on an app or a few drinks out with some friends to help lower your inhibitions, it can be yours for the taking and you don't need to get married anymore. Recently, we have seen in episodes on television or perhaps on YouTube, you've seen some of these episodes yourself, the the rage as a point of popularity has been alternative forms of housing. We have seen this with the mini houses, the tiny houses. If you've seen these things, I have to confess, I've watched a few of these episodes myself and found it absolutely intriguing, like that you could pull off that much stuff in such a tiny space and then live there. Rare are the examples of people who have, like, a few kids and do that. And I always like to see the follow-up show, right? You know, like, a couple years later, like, that was the greatest decision we've ever made as opposed to what were we thinking? But to not be outdone by the tiny houses, there are some people who are like, you know what, we want more mobility than just the tiny houses. We want tremendous mobility, and so they've taken things like school buses, gutted them, and have rebuilt them to be these impressive, like, I don't know, like, RV meets tiny house. And it's quite remarkable as he's like alternative ways to find housing, which seemingly makes sense, right? I mean, housing today, especially in a city like ours in Miami is like, are there any other options here? It's unaffordable, it's undesirable, and honestly, renting kind of seems nicer than being an owner because somebody else has got to fix my toilet, not me. And so we see that, but that problem is that that same mindset comes into how we think about marriage. Are there any other alternatives? Any other ways to kind of navigate society and relationships and guy-girl interactions and desire for intimacy and the pursuit of children and vocational security? and Partners have replaced spouses. Marriage contracts have replaced marriage covenants. And animals have replaced children. Why? Why this change in the culture? Two words. Autonomous individualism. Note that, learn that, understand that. Autonomous individualism. Let me explain it to you just briefly so you understand a category for this. Autonomous is basically the idea of independent authority, meaning no one else has authority over you. You are indeed your own director. You are your own sort of indicator of where you want to go. Individualism recognizes the personality, interests, unique capacity, experiences, and desires of every single person that should be respected. Your emotional temperament, your background, your different experiences, and as a result of that, you should be allowed within your autonomous individualism to be left alone and by no means have any type of overarching expectations put on you by society let alone parents or or mothers or fathers or, you know, siblings, other people in your lives, you should be allowed and be respected accordingly. And if you want to marry your horse, who are we to say no? That's your deal. Again, the lowest common denominator by expectation is as long as you're not doing physical harm to somebody, even that can be a bit debated as to what qualifies as harm, you should be respected accordingly. Many people today do not have a good point of reference, either historically in their own homes regarding marriage, or ideologically in their community as to how marriage is spoken about or even modeled, so they default to simply what they want. We're seeing a rapid deconstruction of objective morality which is being replaced by moral relativism, which is not hard to litigate, or excuse me, it is hard to litigate because you're not quite sure which is the greater principle. Which one should govern and override the other one? Here's the reality. The reality is society is increasingly thinking more like a young child who thinks it'd be better to live out of their house than with their parents. You maybe have this story. My sweet wife does. A moment as a teenage girl where she felt like it would have been better to not be in the house under her parents and she said, I'm leaving. And so she left. She ran away from home. Made it down the street to the store. And I was like, not sure what to do next. Hadn't thought through all that. But just knew that that decision that her mom and dad were making was a decision that she didn't want to be under. And if more of that was coming down the line, she was out of there. And she came to her senses with, in a a little short amount of time, and walked back to the house, her parents being wise and knowing her temperament, how that would process itself. We're not panicking. She came back and realized that there was probably another way than the way she was thinking. But this is how society at large seems to be thinking, right? We want to be free. We want to be spiritually homeless. We want to be morally homeless and our ability to be independent. But here's the problem. Living on the streets creates compoundingly more problems than we ever realized. All the brokenness, all the consequences that come, all the sadness, what happens in the body of Christ is that we are issuing the call of Jesus to those living on the streets of society, saying, you are welcome to come to our home, have a meal with us, introduce you to our heavenly Father who extends himself to you by relationship with his Son, that if you'll see that you need to be forgiven and give your life to Christ, He will adopt you. You become a part of the family, treat you like His own as you become one of His own with new brothers and sisters, but there are indeed in that house, house rules. You can't live how you used to live when you were homeless. You come under the Father's authority. This is what we believe as Christians. We love the Word of God. It is how God communicates to us. Christians are communicating the reality of God's Word. And so, friend, I want to say for those of you who are here not Christians, this is not our attempt to preserve some bygone era. This is our attempt humbly and at times courageously to put before those around us what we hope with clarity what God's Word says. We do that tonight on the topic of marriage. So, let's go back now to Matthew 19, which takes us to part two, God's take on marriage. God's take on marriage. Some people might be thinking, why do you guys care so much? Are we just trying to maintain a contrarian spirit so that whatever is common in society, we're going to resist against it? Or are we just some sort of cultural conservatives who just miss a bygone era when we rode horses and women wore long dresses and men worked in fields and children referred to their mother and father as ma and pa? And those are the good old days? Well, these accusations will not stand. We're not trying to be culturally Amish who declare a certain time in history as the point of progression and no further. But look what Jesus says in Matthew 19. In the middle of this conversation, He says the following in verse 5. And He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But... What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. We spoke in weeks past about verse four, the significance of what was being said there from Genesis, about God creating from the very beginning male and female. I direct your attention to that message online, if you've not heard that, as why Jesus cares about your gender. Last week, we took a look at verses 10 to 12 and why He cares about your relationship. God does not intend every single to be married. I want to be very clear at the outset of that this evening. This is not a sermon that you should think highly of marriage and all singles should be married. Jesus says very clearly in verse 12, God has given the gift of singleness to some people for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But if we're going to think about marriage, we need to think about it correctly. There's some lessons I want us to learn here in the text. From our reading just now in verse 5, some lessons. First of all, cultural interpretation is trumped by creation declaration. I'll say that again. Cultural interpretation is trumped by creation declaration. I've said this before, but I want to say it again because Scripture repeatedly does this. And I want to make sure as your pastor, I'm repeatedly doing this as well. Jesus is being drawn into a cultural debate Jesus, where are you on with this, on this? Are you with this group or are you with this group? Christians all the time are being drawn into the same type of framework. Where are you today on this topic? Where are you today on this issue of marriage? Where are you today on this issue of gender? Where do you identify with? And you can see a lot of Christians individually and in churches collectively are kind of like, oh man, I don't know, I gotta like come public with this and hey, how about the dolphins? And, oh, you just avoid it. For any number of reasons, Christians want to avoid this conversation. Jesus doesn't want to avoid it, but Jesus does something that's a little bit disorienting for the original listeners, and it can be for people today when they're having conversations with us. He goes all the way back, not to Moses, he goes all the way back to Genesis. And that's what he's referring to in verse 4. Have you not read Interesting to me just the primacy that Jesus gives Scripture in conversations. It does beg a side question in conversation for us as Christians to say, how familiar are we with the Scriptures to be able to bring that into our conversations with people? Because quite honestly, we need to be very careful as Christians that we're not leaning into our opinion our preference, our family tradition, what we wish people would do. That is not binding and has no authority. We want to go to what the Word of God says, and that's exactly what Jesus, ironically, the Son of God Himself does when He repeals to Genesis. Have you not read? And then He gives that in verse 4, but then in our text for tonight, He talks about in verse 5, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife which takes us to a second lesson here, marriage trumps all other human relationships. Marriage trumps all other human relationships. When a man marries, he's entering into a new and very intimate relationship that takes precedence over all previous ties. To leave one's parents was thought of as the most unnatural thing to do in that culture at that time. You, you, what? You would never do that. You would never imagine that. Family ties were of the greatest importance, but the creation ordinance put the marriage tie above all other relationships, even family relationships. Now, that's worth pointing out, particularly like in a city like Miami, when we're known in our Afro-Caribbean or Latin cultural context to have such historical connections to family that in one sense is sweet and rich in a way that other cultures could definitely benefit from. But in another context, you can maybe push up against and contradict the Scriptures to say, your marriage, for those of you who are married, or your marriage, for those of you who want to be married, will take a greater precedence and priority than all the relationship you have with your mother, your father, your siblings, your cousins. So you're not being grafting into this existing family, but you're creating a new family with its own new identity. And God intends that relationship to take precedence from the very outset of that marriage. One of the most common conversations I have as a pastor with a young married couple repeatedly is how they learn to leave and cleave. And for some, it's not just leaving existing family relationships. Principally, it's leaving existing singular instincts that they've had, their own ways of living, their own ways of processing, their own ways of handling their finances, their own hobbies and interests, how to bring that into alignment with their spouse. Jesus is describing here what the Scripture describes back in Genesis. Man and wife belong together, bound more closely than any other two persons. It's worth repeating for as much as we hear it contrary in the culture. Let me say it again. Jesus continually expects and envisions the marriage between a man and a woman. This not only rules out gay marriage, which has the law of the land in recent years in our country. It rules out polygamy, polygamy which is the marriage of one man to many women, or polyandry, which is the marriage of one woman to many men. God is intending this to be an exclusive, private relationship between two individuals. So, cultural interpretation is trumped by creation declaration. Secondly, marriage trumps all their human relationships. And now third, God's recognition of the marriage sobers the commitment. God's recognition of the marriage sobers the commitment. Goes what he says in verse six. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is referring to the physical union of a man and a woman upon their marriage when they come together in the marriage bed. That that physical reality is a demonstration of a spiritual indicator of where they actually are. They are seen by God as one. Jesus is emphasizing the closeness of the unity here. The married couple no longer exists independently as two separate people, isolated, autonomous, on their own, but they instead come together. Now, this is radical because the context what Jesus is talking about, reminding you, is a debate on divorce. Jesus, are you at this school, Hillel, this rabbinical uh, tradition? Are you with the Hillel people or with the Shemai people? Which, which tradition are you citing here, Jesus? And Jesus is essentially saying the followers of these traditions were losing sight of the central truth. Marriage is not to be understood as a casual union, subject to the whims and desires of the uncommitted male or female in today's culture. It is a close and binding union, a covenant, the closest of unions known on this earth. And it must be treated with respect and even reverence. Jesus draws an inference from this because marriage is what it is. God has created the union. Let not man put apart what God has joined together. This is significant in how they recognize this. This is like two teenagers coming to their youth pastor who know that they should not have sex before marriage, and they ask their pastor, how far is too far. They're trying to ask the question, how much can I get away with and not be in sin? It's a question that sort of indicates where their heart is leaning, what they're looking for. They're looking for as much liberty as possible to grant them as much license as they desire. That's the perspective coming at this question about divorce when they're asking Jesus. Just how much liberty do we have? How many different ways? How many different means? Is it, is it narrow? Is it many? That we can get out of this thing. And Jesus is basically saying, you're looking at this completely wrongly. The perspective is not one of commitment. It's one of convenience. When things get difficult and things get hard, It's worth repeating to those of you who are Grace Church members and introducing to those of you who are not, maybe not been a part of our Foundations class, let me have them put on the screen for you our church's statement. We have a church confession of faith, what do we believe about the Bible, the Trinity, what do we believe about salvation, what do we believe about the government? We have a church's confession of faith, it's 18 articles. This is one of our articles of our confession of faith. It's specifically our statement of marriage and family. I'm going to read it to you as you... Hear that, or I'll just read it to you, and you maybe won't see it. Here, listen to it as I read it to you. We believe God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society, that it is composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption, that marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime and as the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards and the means for procreation of the human race that children from the moment of conception are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. That's what we as a church say publicly and and, and want people to know about us and how we summarize what the Scripture says in this regards. How do we think through this? Now, we realize that such a statement will increasingly make us social outcasts in society. We understand that and trust that the Lord will come and care for us in whatever way He determines. We do, however, intend to teach our people what God says in His Word so that they can have clarity on God's will for their life. That's why we direct them. And we just have a host of Scripture that teaches us, from Exodus to Psalm to Proverbs to Ecclesiastes, Ephesians to Matthew to Romans to 1 Corinthians, to Deuteronomy, Genesis, these are the things we're saying we want to bring the Scriptures to bear, that we're not making this up. This is not us trying to channel our inner grandparents' generation. This is us saying this is what the Bible puts forth plainly, clearly, and consistently, regardless of culture. This is what God intends us to understand. Friends, let me say this as the pastor of Grace Church. Ambiguity is not a virtue. Rather, it is unhelpful as it leaves people out in the storm of ideology that contradicts itself, and people can't figure out what they should do with their friends or following their hearts. We want to be clear in what Jesus says in His Word, from Matthew 19 to Him going back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which takes me now to the third part, what we should do. What we should do. Now listen, I want to remind you of what I said two weeks ago. I'm speaking to you not only prophetically as a pastor who wants to honor God's Word accordingly and teach God's Word without any delusion, without any kind of compromise, but I also want to speak to you as a pastor, someone who is aware of the realities of different people in this very room this evening. I I say this because I'm thinking of two audiences. There are those that range between difficult marriages you currently are in, previous marriages that you're now divorced from. And overall, just a complicated history of navigating difficult relationships. Some of you before you're Christians, and some of you since you've become Christians. I'm aware of that. I'm definitely aware of that. And I've had many of those conversations with you privately in a one on one context. But I'm also aware that there are those of you who otherwise might not be aware of such individuals and there are such challenges. And I want to make sure that you are sensitive and compassionate as you interact with others here at Grace Church. They're not just writing position papers on divorce and marriage and gender and relationships. We're actually interacting with humanity and all the complexity of it. So, in light of that, five takeaways. Number one, I want everybody to make sure that we are thinking of marriage correctly. Thinking of marriage correctly. Marriage is a divine creation, not a human institution. So, I just want to be very clear and very plain as a Christian to you as Christians, and for those of you who are not Christians, at least hear how we as Christians think about marriage. We're not looking to the government to define marriage for us. That's not where we're sort of finding our definition of marriage. We just realize it's sort of a fool's errand. We're not saying we don't appreciate government. Actually, the Bible teaches how God gives government as a gift to society for human flourishing. Sometimes government works well, sometimes it does not. You could just survey human history and go around the world and see that as a reality. What we're talking about here is the reality that we're not looking to legal precedents to determine how we can understand the confines of and the definition of marriage. We sometimes recognize it as being good, helpful tools, but not something we're dependent upon. So we want to think of marriage correctly. That means we have to do the same thing that Jesus does, which is what he says in verse 4. Have you read? Have you read? Not have you read a latest Supreme Court Justice ruling on marriage, and now have you read a local judicial uh, uh, statement on marriage, and now have you read sort of a local news article on marriage, but have you actually read what the Word of God says? That's the reference point. Secondly, I want you to think of marriage honorably. I want you to think of marriage honorably. Regardless of whether or not you are single, we want you to think of marriage honorably. I recognize some of you come from very bad households where maybe you've never actually known your mother or father. And therefore, you've actually never seen marriage act out in front of you. Others of you had marriages in front of you. You had moms and dads, but you maybe had several of them, several moms, several dads. Or maybe you've still had the same mom and same dad, but it's like less than ideal. It's jacked up. And you're thinking as your point of reference, like if that's marriage… No wonder why I have a low view of it. I don't want anything to do with it. Friends, I understand that that's a common default a lot of us think on any number of topics, which is we go to what we see as our first point of reference, not with what we read. But in a lot of what God's Word says, He puts it for us for human flourishing, we want to kind of go back and get aligned with how we think about it in an honorable way. Now, that does not yet address your desire for it. You might say, the last thing I want is to be married. But let's be very clear Though culturally marriage has fallen on hard times, biblically it has not. Biblically it has not. Also, regardless of whether or not you are married, we want to recognize how you think of marriage honorably. In other words, if you are married, you know, sometimes your view of marriage is sort of depending upon, like, how you like your marriage. I mean, I've been married for 25 years. I love my wife. And I remember being in seminary with a bunch of single guys who are not yet married. Some of them still are not married today, which is totally fine. I remember being like an evangelist for marriage. Like, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was newly married. I got married in 1996. By the time I left I moved to Los Angeles from Miami in 1998, I'd only been married two years. It was wonderful. Not wonderful because we're like rich and killing the game. No, no, we had like no money. Like, our idea of a date night was going to the church where I was a janitor, borrowing the TV VCR combo, from the children's ministry, putting in the pickup truck, going to the store that you probably have never heard of called Blockbuster, getting what you probably have never seen called a VHS cassette, renting a movie, going back to my house and pulling up the piano bench of a piano that had been donated to us, putting on the edge of our small bed, putting it in front of us, putting in a movie for like we were kings and queens. Watching a movie in our bed. Yeah. I loved marriage. But the problem can be, we can often associate our view of marriage, depending on how much we're enjoying it, right then or not. So it's not just your background and how you've had marriage as an example or a bad one. It's also the one you're in right now. And I say this just to be very careful and very compassionate to a number of you. Some of you are some very difficult marriages. These are difficult days. And I want to just continue to encourage you with God's Word and how He puts it in front of you to think of marriage honorably, the significance of what it means, what God has brought together. And the season you're in right now, perhaps the Lord has, is not the season to be in for the rest of your life. But to trust in Him. The third takeaway It's to demonstrate your Christianity in your marriage. Demonstrate your Christianity in your marriage. The Bible spends more time talking about your Christianity than it does your marriage. I mean, you're going to be hard-pressed. If you go to the concordance, if you're looking about marriage, like, hey, I think I want to get married. How do I know more about it? Or I'm in marriage. How do I, you know, give me some Bible verses about marriage. You basically have two pools to draw from, a bunch of weird, out-of-context cultural examples of marriage in the Old Testament. Like, wait, he had how many wives? They're doing what? That's so weird. God want me to do that? Or you've got just a few sampling of verses. Now, they're profound and they're rich. But surprisingly, most of the Bible isn't talking about marriage. But that's not a problem for you if you want to be married or if you're married. Most of the Bible is talking about your relationship with God and neighbor of which starts with, regarding your neighbor, the one you wake up to every morning in your bed if you're married. How you work out your faith in Christ and how you interact with Christ in faith through trusting His Word is in how you interact with those relationships that you're married to, that that man or that woman that you are pursuing or that you are already committed to in marriage covenant. And this is why I would just say to you, for those of you who are awfully selective in your friendships, and guys or girls who are kind of partial in how you handle and navigate your sort of social circles. You're not setting yourself up well to be married in the future. I say this because marriage is one of those common reoccurring exercises where you just like die to yourself all the time. Now my point here is not to complain about my spouse. My point is to sort of confess my own issues of how often my selfishness is brought out, my pride is brought out, my laziness is brought out. That's why sometimes I like to commend singles to get roommates together, to just keep them from getting deep ruts, deep trenches, sort of like, just sort of live life on their own so preferentially, not sinfully by any stretch of the imagination, but that you're like, you know what you need? You need a roommate to tell you're a knucklehead. You need someone who has watched something else on TV. You need someone who eats your food. You need someone who doesn't like, you know, doesn't empty the dishwasher like you would or leaves or clothes in the dryer like for like five days. Like, I hate having roommates. Like, no, I think what's happening is you're hate being exposed. And that's like good marriage training. For those of you who are married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, wow, I didn't realize how jacked up I was until I got married. I didn't realize, man, I'm really jacked up. I'm saying if you're single and you aspire to marriage... You would do well and be wise to begin to think now about relationships, not even the context of guy-girl relationships, just the context of good friendships and how you even live together and work out your relationships together. Understand that God has given distinct and complementary roles between men and women in relationships in order to fulfill that. I say to you men particularly, some of you men struggle with what I talked about last week, self-control or leadership. It's hard for a woman to be attracted to a man who does like he can't control himself. His time, his money, his mouth. Or she can't respect him if somebody, he doesn't make any sort of lead himself through his life itself. It's certainly hard to see that. And I say it because young men have not been given good older men examples to want to imitate and emulate. I'm saying, gentlemen, that's why you want to find godly men in your life, particularly in your local church where you can find those and pursue those. Number four, include your church in your marriage. Include your church in your marriage. Get encouragement. Seek counsel, ask for prayer, imitate examples, be an example to others. Again, continue to kick against the privatized individuality that a lot of times people operate within. I've had married couples who say to me, even Christian ones, who say, hey, there's some verse in the Bible that says, after, like within a year of marriage, I'm supposed to take like a year off of like war and responsibility. So I'm just going to tell you right now I'm not going to be around church much because we're just getting to know each other well. All right, first of all, your Bible handling is horrible. If you like to do the Bible, I can teach you a lot of crazy things with the Bible. You're going to get all kind of jacked up. Secondly, that's not at all how the Christian community works in the context of your marriage. You want to be in the context, both in dating and engagement and marriage, in the context of community where there's counsel and prayer, encouragement and examples Fifth and final, don't divorce the gospel from your understanding of marriage. Christians are not first and foremost concerned about the good news of their spouse. I am not an evangelist for the good news of marriage. Out here proselytizing people on the virtues of heterosexual marriage. That's not my interest. It's not my primary calling. My interest and your interest is for Christ to be known and Ephesians chapter five speaks about that God chose one relationship on the planet to tell a story about the the relationship on all of human history, and that's the relationship between Christ and the church. And He chose marriage, and He gave marriage particular roles and responsibilities to the man and the woman, so He could tell a greater story. The greater story that marriage tells is the gospel. Friends, you do not have to be married or want to be married, to understand the gospel. You do not have to be in any kind of particular relationship to understand you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That relationship is so defining, so life-altering, so securing, so eternally shaping, and that ultimately, that's all that matters. And marriage is only supposed to indicate that, be a presentation of that. We would say to husbands, what does your wife learn about Christ and how you lead her and love her and protect her and care for her? We'd say to wives, uh, uh, to the husbands, wives, what does your husband learn about how the church responds to Christ and how you respond? But we would say to the world, we hope when you look at our marriages, you would see a shadow, a murmur, an echo of a grand story of Christ in the church. And when we have not given that example in our marriages… On behalf of Christians, to you who those who who are here as non-Christians, forgive us, for we have not told the story well. Because while we cheat on our spouses, here, Christ does not cheat on His spouse. When we're tempted to go after someone else and desire and complain about what God has given. Jesus has never complained about what the Father has given to Him in the church. Ephesians five says Christ loved her and gave Himself up for her. Jesus loves the church, and He loves you if your faith is in Him. He promised to never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus will never divorce you, no matter what you do, because His love for you is not conditional upon who you are or what you have or will do. It's because of what He has done on the cross of making payment for sins and in his resurrection, that that payment is enough. And for that, we could be married to Christ our Savior. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.